The disciple that we have come to know as Doubting Thomas is a perfect example of part of the messiness and complexity of the Christian life that we're, we're called to live into realities that we can't readily or empirically perceive to believe things that we can't see. And this has always been the case. But I think this is exacerbated today by the increasingly relativistic cauldron we call the world, fueled by the notion that everyone is entitled and even encouraged to form their own reality based primarily, if not solely, on their individual and unmediated perceptions. It goes something like this. The way I see the world is the world. Perception is reality, which, by the way, is a relatively recent idea. Uh, actually, Lee Atwater, President Reagan's, one of President Reagan's advisors, came up with that phrase. But perception is reality, or at least is my reality, has become an almost universal cultural assumption, leaving little room for things that may be objectively and ultimately real, but don't fit our perceptions. Things for which we simply don't have eyes to see. And this creates a huge amount of uncertainty, anxiety, and dis-ease, because What's real? Well, what I say is real. C.S. Lewis had little patience for this idea, noting that you cannot go against the grain of reality. You simply cannot go against the grain of reality and not expect to get splinters. Reality is reality, regardless of how I see it. In this week's epistle reading, St. John, seeking to encourage seven churches struggling in the cauldron of the Roman Empire, writes something that's objectively and ultimately real, but may not have fit the perception of his original readers much more than it does ours today. Just really super high altitude view or note about Revelation. Anglicans, of course, were used to hearing parts of Revelation read in our lectionary year, mostly passages describing the new Jerusalem, the final heavens and earth that shape chapters 21 and 22 of the book. But what happens on the way to reaching the place where Christ fully exercises his kingship is the stuff of the middle chapters shaped by immense conflict between Christ and his army of martyrs on one side and the prostitute of Babylon and a series of beasts on the other. Borrowing from Old Testament images, the beasts and the prostitute are symbols of the military power and economic wealth of nations. Two places, two places where human beings consistently place idolatrous, idolatrous trust, usurping the rightful lordship of Christ, which we seem to see more and more as the days, goes, days go on. This won't be news to you. We are living in days for us of unprecedented instability, 
I don't have to enumerate the worldwide political, economic, and cultural conflict for you, but suffice it to say, we've today become acutely aware of how unstable and precarious the world actually is. The fact is, we don't know what will happen in any of these developments we see around us in the world. And the speed of change in the last few years especially should make us realize that astonishing developments are possible in the near future beyond anyone's ability to predict. Which leads me to a word of hope and encouragement from John today. He's writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. And between widespread persecution, heresy, and other problems in the churches, it's a time of crisis for all of them, which you gather by reading the seven letters in chapters two and three. So John begins his letter with a reassuring, strengthening, encouraging, and hopeful word. And there's nothing that's happened between then and now that should make these words any less relevant or applicable to us today. John wrote in chapter one, verses four and five, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And I want to give just a little focus this morning to the phrase, Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. <coughs> this is the word for us today in the midst of the amazing worldwide upheavals of the last few years. Jesus Christ is the ruler of all the kings and presidents and chiefs and premiers and governors and prime ministers. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he became the firstborn from among the dead, God gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee might bow. And that includes all the rulers and kings of the earth. Jesus is alive today, presiding from heaven over the rulers on earth. This is a breathtaking thought, but something most people today don't believe or even think about because it simply doesn't match our perceptions and therefore cannot be reality. And so it's something we must constantly be reminded of because it's at the heart of biblical truth. Jesus is alive and reigning over the kings on earth. And all the in events in Eastern Europe and the Middle East and Asia and America. We need to understand what this means. Biblically and historically, I see at least five things. Firstly, the reign of Christ today means that he controls who becomes king and who doesn't. Daniel 2.21 says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. When Jesus says in Matthew 28.18, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. I think his meaning must include that God's authority to remove kings and set up kings is given to him. The father appoints the kings 
and the presidents of the earth through the Son. This doesn't mean that every king lives an obedient life or pleases the Lord. God often ordains and disposes things that don't please him completely. It means that Jesus overrules the sinful acts of evil rulers and makes their sin and their folly a part of his wise plan for history. And this is hard for us to wrap our brain around them. He overrules the sinful acts and makes their sin and their folly a part of the wise plan of history, which is incredibly complex and paradoxical. The reality of Christ's rule isn't simple. We have to remind ourselves of that again and again. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. Christ is absolutely, is absolutely ruling in establishing for a time governments of Russia and China and North Korea and Syria and even the United States as he did Cyrus the king in Isaiah 45, 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord to, and this is mind-bending, the Lord says to his anointed, Cyrus, an evil evil man, but God was using him, whose right hand uh, I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him, the gates that may not be closed. I will go before you and level and exalted and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, from the rising of the sun from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. 20th century theologian Leslie Newbegin wrote that nations and rulers have a part to play in God's purpose, but they can come to usurp the place to which they have no right, the place which belongs to Christ and to him alone. They can be, as we say, absolutized, and then they become demonic. The power ordained by God of Romans 13 becomes the beast of Revelation. This vision in Revelation isn't given to describe something that takes place only every now and then, but is a pattern recurring for the ultimate course of all nations. In Revelation, God promises that Babylon's and Rome's, Persia's, Germany's, and yes, even America's, and their rulers will come and they will go, particularly when they put themselves in the place of Christ by demanding an allegiance appropriately directed to Christ alone. So we must not read our papers or watch the news the way non-Christians do. We must discern through the lens of scripture and know the works of Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. 
Secondly, the reign of Christ over the rulers of the earth means that he regulates what the kings on earth do, sometimes restraining them from evil and sometimes ordering events to further his purposes. For example, in Genesis 20, we read about how Abraham went down to Gerar, south of Canaan. To protect himself, he said that his wife, Sarah, was his sister. Abimelech, the king, took her into his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream and threatened him with death if he didn't give her back untouched. Abimelech protested his innocence, and God said something critical. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This means that God has the authority to prevent rulers who do not even know him from committing sinful acts. God can and does restrain evil in the hearts of rulers, and he also sometimes allows sin to take its course. And this authority right now belongs to Jesus Christ. He's ruler of kings on earth. He has his wise and loving purposes when he allows sin to take its course. And he has his wise and loving purposes when he restrains the Abimelechs of the world. But not only does he sometimes restrain evil, he also orders events to further his purposes. For example, since he had promised in the Old Testament that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and he chose a young woman in Nazareth to bear the child, he ordered things so that the uh, Caesar Augustus would take a census of the whole empire, which caused Joseph and Mary to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem just when Jesus was to be born. God rules the nations to fulfill his saving purposes and is always planning new things for the advancement of that kingdom. And we shouldn't be, and we should be ever praying and seeking to be alert about how to be right in step with what he's doing. Because we can't always perceive it. Thirdly, the reign of Christ today over kings of the earth means that he has authority to claim citizens for his own kingdom from all the nations of the earth, and he's doing this today. It's important to see the connection between Matthew 28, 18, and 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the fact that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he is the ruler of the kings on earth, means that he can take their citizens to be citizens of his kingdom without their permission. <laughs> this means that churches are rightful emissaries and ambassadors to the king who is over all things, and no one has a right to keep them from calling all people everywhere to submit to the king, Christ Jesus. The kings on earth may not recognize this right and authority of Christian churches in all countries, but the authority of the ruler of the kings on earth is behind them. And they have a right to go wherever he sends. Fourth, the reign of Christ over kings on earth today means that he will triumph and bring all his saving purposes to victory. 
1 Corinthians 5, 15, 25 says, Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And in Revelation 17, 14, the kings of the earth are arrayed in battle against Christ, but it says they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Did you catch that? Standing in opposition to these rebellious nations is an unexpected, totally unexpected champion. A lamb slain. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven and its armies are ruled and led by a lamb that was led to slaughter. The God who was crucified, who has conquered his enemies by dying on their behalf. The marching orders given by the slain lamb to his army in this cosmic battle are stranger still. Bear witness. Bear witness to this crucified God before beastly nations who rely on military might and economic security, even when it costs your life. This is the way of the crucified God. The Messiah who conquers and rules by giving himself completely on behalf of his enemies. And because he is ruler of kings on earth, he cannot be defeated. His cause will triumph. So what does being part of this strange army who follow a slain lamb mean for the, us in the U.S. today? A great deal, I think. Jesus Christ is not only the king of our hearts, as so many who have adopted an overly personalized version of Christian faith in America are happy to claim, but the king of kings. There will ultimately be only one king and only one kingdom such that the political and national identities of those who choose the way of the crucified God will be at best a piece of not so interesting trivia in the kingdom of heaven. Pundits tell us that every election now is apocalyptic in nature, perhaps signaling the end of times or at least the end of America. But Christians know that determining the end of nations and times is a task reserved for God alone. Much of the fear, hysteria, and cruelty driving our political life could be put to an abrupt end. Would Christians only affirm this truth with as much conviction and energy as they expend supporting political candidates and causes? Maybe the greatest gift the reality of Christ as ruler of kings on earth can give us today as a reminder that all will be well. All will be well in the end because Christ is king. This absolutely does not mean that everything will be easy or comfortable for Christians as we've come to expect. God has never promised that. In fact, just the opposite. After all, we follow a slaughtered lamb, a crucified God, and it's in his death and resurrection where we find our direction and power. Nor does it mean that we're to passively stand by while injustice or wickedness takes place around us. The slain lamb didn't do that in, in the face of evil, nor should we. And we have people in our congregation who have given their lives to working in statecraft. And, and ensuring that these things are not happening 
around the world. It's important that we be engaged in this. But it's not ultimate. What the lordship of Christ means is that until the return of the one true king, kings on earth are acting on borrowed authority. And our allegiances to them and the institutions they serve must always be measured in light of Christ's return. Maybe God has given us this season of worldwide national, political, and cultural turmoil to the church in part as an opportunity to remind her of this fact. This is the very air that we should breathe. Christ is triumphant in his reign over the kings on earth. Everything happening today is a step toward decisive triumph. It can't be otherwise because he has risen from the dead. The ultimate weapon of earthly kings is death. But if that weapon has lost its power, then the kings are defeated. It's only a matter of time. And Jesus tells us that time has been set by the sovereign wisdom of God. Okay, finally, the reign of Christ over the rulers on earth today means that Christ is ordering the world for the good of his church. And that means for your, for my, for our holiness and happiness. You can see this here and in other places as well. For example, Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things under Christ's feet and made him the head over all things for his church. He reigns for the sake of his church. This is a staggering thought, and it should revolutionize the way we consume podcasts and news and live out our lives. If we view the news with the perception of faith, what we're seeing played out before us are the divine strategies for purifying and expansion of the body of Christ. You can see this good news in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. In other words, John wants us to know beyond what we can see that the authority of Christ over kings on earth is designed to bring grace and peace to his people. So, be encouraged, be strengthened and hopeful and bold as you enter the turmoil and upheaval of the world in these times. Remember, Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. He controls who becomes king and who doesn't. He regulates what kings on earth do, sometimes holding them back from evil and sometimes ordering international events to further his purposes. He has authority to claim citizens for his own kingdom from all the nations on earth. He will triumph and bring all his saving purposes to victory. And Christ is ordering the world for the good of his church. Therefore, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings on earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.